Our reading today is taken from uh, the second book of Samuel, chapter 16. Second Samuel 16. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. Aren't the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink? And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and uh, let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. 
So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray together before we begin this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Lord, help us to understand your word better this morning and to apply it to our lives. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, give us grace and wisdom that we might have sight into the meaning of your word and how we are to apply it. And now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this morning we're returning to Second uh, Samuel. And if you are joining us uh, uh, perhaps for the first time in a little while, this may seem like an odd passage for a sermon. And on the reading it in isolation, it would seem like an odd passage, but hopefully most of you have been tracking with the sermon series in Second Samuel, and if you've missed a week, it's quite important that you try and catch up online so that you know where we are in the story and are able to uh, pick up where we're at. It's important to remember that when we expound Scripture and when we're thinking about the Word of God, we're not just picking through stories in the Bible to say, oh, here's an interesting principle. That's a useful one that I can use in my life. What we're doing is we're looking at the totality of Scripture and how all of it leads us to the Lord Jesus Christ and gives us a deeper understanding of what it means to lead the Christian life. Now, last week, we were thinking about Absalom's revolt. Absalom is one of David's sons, and Absalom, thank you, has rebelled against his father. He's been plotting against his father, and this lengthy plot that was expounded to us last week has resulted in David, King David, finding himself in a situation where he needs to leave the city. He needs to leave the city of Jerusalem. He needs time to organize. He needs time to prepare to defend himself and his kingdom against Absalom. If he doesn't, he knows that everything is going to be lost. Now, I don't know whether you can even place yourself for a moment in David's situation. Your own son has conspired against you to take your kingdom away from you. One of the inheritors of your kingdom has conspired to take it away from you over a long period of time. This is not uh, a petulant row that Absalom has had with his dad, and he stormed off and said, I'm not coming back, I'm taking my ball, I'm leaving. Kids, do you remember, have you, have you ever packed your bags yet? Sort of packed a quick bag and told your parents, I'm off. I did that once. I made it round the block. I was back a few moments later for a cup of tea and a biscuit. But this, was, but this wasn't the case for Absalom. Absalom had plotted over a period of years to betray his father, 
And David knows he has to leave the city, and he leaves, and he's going into the Kidron Valley toward the desert. This is his escape route from the royal palace. So you have to imagine David leaving the royal palace with those that are faithful to him amongst his military and some of his key officials, and he's passing out through the valley and toward the desert. And as he goes, there are Uh, as we read in the last chapter, many people in his kingdom who are distraught and distressed about this, they're weeping as he goes. They're crying by the side of the road. They're in anguish. So David is still loved by many of his people, that's clear. But they're confused and they don't know what's going on. And so what we have actually today is a continuation of this story of sadness and of anguish in the midst of betrayal. And so I've entitled what I want to say this morning, The Price of Loyalty. As you actually work through the account, David is on this journey, he's working through his grief, he's dealing with resolve with his past sins. He's having to confront his past sin and failure. And we see in it a contrast between, between the way Saul responded to the Lord's discipline, David's predecessor on the throne, and the way that David responds to the Lord's discipline. There's a big contrast And remember, if you think back to last week as well, David has sent the ark, which we didn't talk about much last week, but he sends the ark back to the city. The ark is brought to him, and instead of taking it with him and saying, right, this will give me a strategic advantage, instead of taking it with him, he sends it back to the city because the ark in the nation of Israel is the symbol of God's approval. David doesn't want to try and manipulate God. He doesn't want to take the ark and use it for his own political purpose. He's not trying to make the symbol of the presence of God something that he's going to turn to his own personal advantage, even in this situation. He actually looks beyond his own ambition in this moment, and he humbly trusts God to do what is best. So we're, we're in a passage where we see a man who's got great faith. He's trusting the Lord in a disastrous, incredibly painful situation. And yet he's also a man of great planning and strategy. Now notice that those two things are often seen as mutually exclusive. If you are a person of faith, it is often thought, well, you just rest things in the hands of the Lord, you don't do anything. You don't plan. You don't strategize. You don't think things through. You just sit and wait. And that's, sometimes we think that's faith. But actually, David brings together these ideas in unity. Faith does not mean you don't have a plan, that you don't have any kind of strategy. It means that in the midst of your circumstances and situation, you are entrusting yourself to the Lord as you plan, as you develop a strategy. 
So if you're in debt and you're finding it crushing, yes, trust the Lord. Put your faith and your trust. But you do need a plan. You still need a strategy. If you're going through relational difficulties in your family, extended family, trust the Lord with it. Pray about it. But you should have a plan to address the issues. If you're struggling at work, and there are problems at work, entrust them all to the Lord. Put your faith and trust in God and have a strategy. And ask the Lord to give you wisdom as you plan. So while trusting God, David is going to do everything that he can, we see in this passage, to answer the challenge of Absalom. Imagine that. Imagine trying to form a strategy to answer the challenge of your own son that you, may, you know may well lead to his death. That's a very, very difficult situation to be in. But he sends Abiathar and Zadok to Jerusalem because David sees an opportunity in this situation to develop a network of informants regarding Absalom's activity. So that sets the stage for where we are this morning. The first thing I want to talk about then is a question of loyalty. A question of loyalty. In the text today, that's the first thing that actually arises for David, a question of loyalty. Now think about this for a moment. David has already discovered that his son has betrayed him, wants his life, wants to take his life, and wants to take everything he has. He's also discovered that his closest advisor, Ahithophel, has also betrayed him. So his son and the person he depended on the most in his decision-making, his closest advisor and friend, who don't forget is the grandfather of Bathsheba, who's been secretly holding a grudge, has also betrayed him. So, So David has discovered this, and so he has sent... Hushai to Jerusalem as a double agent. I was thinking about this this week. These double agents that uh, are operating now in the text for David. And I wonder whether some great military leaders in the past, including Winston Churchill, who developed MI6, I think, <clears throat> and uh, not just the special air service, but some of the intelligence services that helped win the Second World War. A lot of it was down to intelligence gathering. Whether he picked up any ideas here from, this, from the biblical accounts of a spy network. Now, I could digress here into a very interesting discussion about when it's okay to mislead. This is wartime now, remember. Now, now David is on a war footing, remember. So, you know, don't look at this and say, oh, look, you know, all kinds of misleading and people misleading Absalom and so forth deliberately. I, I th- look, obviously, I can do that. Now, this is a war footing. It's a, it's, a, it's a unique set of circumstances. But it's interesting that it's there. But in this moment, in this particular account today, old memories, old covenants and friendships resurface in these 
episodes, two episodes actually, that relate to the house of Saul. So now David, as he goes on this journey, is confronting two individuals from the house of Saul. And that it, that's the king that David has replaced. Zeba and then Shimei. So he gets to the summit, just beyond the summit of the Mount of Olives. So remember, he's come from, this is like a, 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 a um, I was going to say a cortege, maybe that's the wrong word, um, a, a cohort of people who are traveling with him from the royal palace, out through the city, up the Mount of Olives. He gets over the crest of the Mount of Olives, and he's confronted by Zeba, who was a steward in Saul's house. Now, I don't expect you to have a memory long enough to think back to 2 Samuel 9, because I know it's hard enough to remember last week's sermon. But we did meet Zeba already in 2 Samuel 9, who's given responsibility in charge over the house of Mephibosheth. He's made responsible for Mephibosheth's welfare. Who's Mephibosheth? You all remember, we all should remember and know the story of Mephibosheth. He's the son of Jonathan. Jonathan was David's best friend, covenantal friend. Right? And Mephibosheth, David, after the death of Saul, says, Is there someone to whom I can show kindness in the house of Saul? Is there somebody left from the house to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And Mephibosheth is this lame man who was dropped as a child. He's lame in his feet. And David takes him into his house, into his palace, and says, come and eat at the king's table for the rest of your life. So he meets Zeba, and he's... Zeba, the, the, the head of Mephibosheth's house, has these donkeys laden with supplies and goods for David. Donkeys to ride on, bread and fruit, wine to drink, and so on. This is, when you're tired and you're on a journey, this is a, this is a really good gift. And David naturally asks the question, Zeba, where is Saul's grandson? Where, where is Mephibosheth? The one to whom David has shown all this kindness, and he's treated to this devastating report. What does Zeba say? Why he's staying in Jerusalem? For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore my grandfather's kingdom to me. In other words, Zeba is saying, Mephibosheth joined Absalom because he thinks that Absalom is going to give him a large slice of Saul's kingdom. So your son's betrayed you. Your closest advisor has betrayed you. And now you get over the Mount of Olives and you learn that Jonathan's son, whom you took into your own home, you're told, has also betrayed you. Now, when some of us get let down by a friend or somebody says something nasty about us or tweets something unkind about us or says something, else, we're <laughs> I haven't got any many likes. We, imagine being in this situation. This situation of betrayal. Now, David is immediately confronted then again with the question of loyalty. Zeba, 
or Mephibosheth? Who's telling the truth? Has Jonathan's lame son whom he loved really betrayed him? Now, you're, you're already tired. You're, despite David being a brave man, he must have been greatly fearful for his kingdom, his house. What typically happens with a change of dynasty is that anybody connected with, with David would have been killed. Many children would likely have been killed. He's, got all, he's bearing all of that burden. He's, he's lost his closest advisor, and then boom. Who does he trust? Does he now trust Mephibosheth's servant? Is he telling the truth? Is Zeba telling the truth? David doesn't know. He's, got, he's only got Zeba's word to go on, and there's Zeba laden with gifts. Is he an opportunist, or is he telling the truth? Well, it seems that initially David says, okay, what was Mephibosheth's is yours. Later on, though, in uh, chapter 19, verses 24 through 28, it's worth just jumping there. Chapter 19, 24 through 28. Just uh, remember that the kingdom is restored to David. Mephibosheth defends himself. Listen to this. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet, trimmed his mustache, like some of you, or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked, Mephibosheth, why didn't you come with me? My lord, the king, he replied, my servant Zeba betrayed me. Actually, your servant said, I'll saddle the donkey for myself so that I may ride it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. So he says, I said to Zeba, saddle my donkey, I'm going to the king. Zeba did saddle it, but he rode it himself. Zeba slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God, so do whatever you think best. For my grandfather's entire family deserves death from my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. So what further right do I have to keep on making appeals to the king? The king said to him, why keep on speaking about these matters of yours? I hereby declare you and Zeba are to divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, instead, since my lord the king has come to his palace safely, let Zeba take it all. So Zebra, it turns out, is a scoundrel. He's a liar. So David is now dealing with false counsel as well. He's being told, while some people are betraying him, he's being told, everybody's betraying you. Everybody's turning on you. And he's getting false reports. He didn't have the benefit of this testimony of Mephibosheth as he came over the Mount of Olives. So imagine the pain of this repeated question of loyalty. But it asked this question of David. All of this asked this fundamental question of David. Will David be loyal to God and his covenant? In the midst of all of this, even in the midst of persecution and betrayal. Now, I don't know all of your circumstances here this morning, but most of us at some point or another have experienced betrayal. 
feeling betrayed and let down. How do we deal with it? How do we handle it? Sometimes in our closest relationships, sometimes in friendships. Have you faced reports of betrayal and disloyalty? So sometimes we know there's betrayal, and other times we hear a report that somebody's speaking against us. Those are very difficult moments to handle. You know what Scripture says, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, judge nothing before the time. Now, you can understand David rushing to some kind of quick judgment here because of the pressure he's under. The Scripture says, judge nothing before the time. God will bring things to light in his time. When we're hearing reports about disloyalty, and even when we sense there's disloyalty, be patient. Be patient with it. Now, that's easier said than done, I grant. But we need to exercise patience, not to be rash, not to be quick to judge when we're faced with the question of loyalty, because maybe we don't yet know whether Mephibosheth has something to say to us as well. The thing we need to do when we're hearing reports is entrust ourselves to God. Focus on your loyalty to God first. And let him bring other things to light in due course. You know, when that kind of thing is going on, it does have a way of coming to light. You don't need to rush to judgment to organize it and sort it all out. Be patient. David is finally loyal both to Saul's house, actually, because of his covenant with Jonathan, and to God. So let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about the price of loyalty. We're often, the question comes up in our lives of the question of loyalty. What about the price of loyalty? The question of loyalty comes up with Zeba, but the price of loyalty comes up with Shimei. As David and his retinue is passing his town, David is going out past all of these towns, Shimei this character we're introduced to, takes the opportunity to come out and hurl curses and insults and stones at David. Now, don't forget, remember, he's the king. He's still the king. And he's got an armed guard with him. And Shimei comes out hurling these insults. Look at it in verse 7 and 8. Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you worthless murderer. The Lord has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you became king. And the Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. Look, you are in trouble because you are a murderer. You ever hear people trying to give you some home truths? When you're in a difficult situation, when you're in a, a challenging spot, And some people take that opportunity to say, well, it's because of this, isn't it? It's because of that. It's because of what you did here. God's getting you back. He believes that David deserves crisis and the suffering that he's facing. He thinks David deserves it. And actually, the scriptures show that in many respects, David did deserve it. 
because of his actions, which we've covered with Bathsheba and Uriah. And you remember he took Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, for himself. He arranged for the death of Uriah to cover his tracks. But there was also his inaction regarding Tamar, which we've dealt with, and Absalom. When he didn't do anything, when he didn't act and intervene. So there's truth, there's, there's, there is some truth in what Shimei is saying. He is a murderer. He is under God's discipline. But Shemei wants vengeance for all the wrong reasons. David isn't in his present circumstances because of the way he treated Saul at all. Shimei feels dispossessed by David's replacing the house of Saul. He's from the house of Saul, so he's angry and resentful because he feels dispossessed even though all of that was God's doing. It was God's doing. Now, there were doubtless many who, rep- who resented David's rise to power. Remember, this meant the rise of the tribe of Judah over the tribe of Benjamin. And there would have been those, especially from the tribe of Benjamin, who resented this. But 1 and 2 Samuel are actually a refutation of the claims of Shimei. David was a man of innocence in the process of becoming king. You'll recall we've covered it in 1 and 2 Samuel. He did everything he could to protect Saul, to keep Saul, to honor Saul. The last thing David was guilty of was usurping in any way the throne of Saul. God often replaces the disobedient with the obedient heart, and then he anoints and he blesses faithfulness and loyalty. And that becomes a source of resentment to many people. It happens, it's happened in the history of nations, when God blesses one nation because of their honoring God in some area. It happens in the blessing of churches as well as of families and individuals. That God will remove blessing from the disobedient and he will anoint and bless the obedient. And of course, that can lead to resentment. In some respects, we're seeing all kinds of resentments playing out in our streets at the moment. None of us should be like Shemei and throw stones at God's anointed because we resent God using them or blessing them. But actually, you know, most of us, when we read a passage like this, we're walking with David. We're with David's retinue. We might even be David as we're reading this text. But let's be careful we're not on the other side of the ridge, throwing stones and cursing those that God is using and blessing because they've been obedient and we've been disobedient. It's a challenge to us to walk in obedience to the Lord. David is guilty of murder. He's a sinner for sure, which gives the insults and the cursing force and adds to the pain that they're going to cause him because he knows in his heart that there's, there's truth in what's being said. It's twisted, but there's truth in it. 
He's innocent in the matter of Saul and his kingship, but not in other matters. And so the accusation that God is paying David back for the blood of Saul's house, that is totally false. So the cursing and the charge is false, but it hits home because David knows he's a sinner, he's guilty. Shemei has no right to pronounce curses on David, and eventually, actually, Shemei pays the price for what he's done. In uh, 1 Kings 2, we see that played out. Now, while this cursing is going on, one of David's men says, uh, I don't like the sound of that. Let me go and relieve Shemei of his head. Why do you need to listen to that? Why should you listen to that man cursing you and throwing stones? Let me go over there and liberate him of his head. But David's response is very interesting, isn't it? We'll come to that in just a moment. But first, let's ask this question. What do you do when you face false accusation and insults and persecution? Because actually, as we heard in our prayers, that is the price of loyalty to God and his calling. If you're going to be loyal to God and you're going to be loyal to the gospel, you are going to face insults and cursings and people throwing things at you figuratively, perhaps literally in some instances. That's the price of loyalty to God. There are people who want to take vengeance against God and his word, and therefore they will strike out at God's anointed. And much of the cultural opposition that Christians face today is born out of that. It's that because of the hostility there is in people's hearts to God, unless God changes them by his grace, they strike out, they can't strike out at God directly. You can't pull God down off his throne. So you strike out instead against the Lord's anointed and curse those who represent God to take vengeance on God's anointed. And that's why Christians suffer for their confession. Now, let's make sure we're suffering for our confession, not for the wrong reasons. But if we're faithful, if we are loyal to God and his covenant, we will face this situation. People will be disloyal. There will be insults. Things will be thrown at us. We'll be accused of things that aren't true. And when people speak evil of us for our commitment to Christ, though we know we are sinners, the thing is when we hear it, we'll think, oh, some of that's kind of true. Yeah, it is. But we're not claiming it isn't. <laughs> what we're saying is that by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, we've been justified. 
And so we don't need to take false guilt on ourselves when we hear people insulting us and charging us with all kinds of things. We can entrust ourselves, like David, to God. What does Scripture say? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's mine to repay. That's the price of loyalty. And David was now paying the price of loyalty to God and to God's covenant. Let's think quickly about the object of loyalty. I know it's warm in here, and I know you're being very loyal listening so quietly in this heat and humidity. The object of loyalty. Let's think about David's response to these attacks. So Abishai, as I mentioned him, this enthusiastic colleague of David's, hears all of this, and he wants to relieve Shimei of his head. And this is what David says. The king replied, sons of Zariah, do we agree on anything He curses me this way because the Lord told him, curse David. Therefore, who can say, why did you do that? Then David said to Abishai and all his servants, look, my own son, my own flesh and blood. Listen to the pain in David's words. My own son, my own flesh and blood intends to take my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse me. The Lord has told him to. Perhaps the Lord will see my affliction and restore goodness to me instead of Shemei's curses today. That's a remarkable response. It's a remarkable response. I'm not sure I'd have responded that way. I know what I'm like. You know, I'm, I'm a pugilist. You know, as a Christian apologist, my tendency when people are coming at me is to... Yeah, to devise a means to defend myself. Now, there's a place for that, of course. I'm not saying we don't need Christian apologists, but we need to defend the truth, not ourselves. I would have been, as the king there with my men, Benjamite over the other side, cursing and throwing things at me while I'm being in this dread, in this situation of suffering. My patience would have been about this deep. And I said, Yeah, bring his head. I think most of us would have had a tendency to want to react like that. But, in, but David actually sets us another kind of example here. And we'll see the example that it reflects in a moment. He's not interested in a violent reaction to Saul's family. Now, we might ask, well, if it had been somebody completely random, might he have acted differently? Possibly. But this is, rela- this is related to his faithfulness to the Lord. This is why he doesn't react, right? His reaction is out of his faithfulness to God and his covenant. Think about this. He sees that the Lord, David looks at this situation, he says, the Lord's allowing this. The Lord's allowing this. He's permitted this. And he wants to submit himself to the Lord's will in all respects. I'm thinking David, you know, when I said at the beginning that David, as he goes on this journey, God's dealing with him. It's a journey in which God is dealing with him. And he's trying to respond to his own sense of sin and his own failures in the midst of the betrayal and everything else. He's addressing, he's dealing with it as he goes.
And he wants to submit himself to the Lord's will. And what's most remarkable is that his response actually pictures an image of perfect loyalty amidst the disloyalty he's experienced on every side. This Benjamite is from Saul's house. And David was always loyal to Saul and to Jonathan. Always. You remember that time when Saul is hunting for David to take his life, to kill him? And David is in a cave with some of his men. And Saul comes into that very cave to relieve himself. And David's men say to him, the Lord has given Saul into your hands. You know, uh, without getting into all the details, when he's doing his business, he'll have put his sword down over there, taken his cloak off. Easy. David doesn't do it. He refuses to do it. And here, in this moment, when he must have been at his lowest... This must have been such a low point for David. He shows perfect loyalty. He endures the insults. He remembers the covenant and of the Lord's anointing of Saul. And he's faultlessly loyal to Saul's house. This is years after Saul's death. And he's still being loyal. Why? Because it rested on a deeper loyalty to God and his covenant. That's who David was being loyal to ultimately. David knew that when he sinned with Bathsheba, he was ultimately being disloyal to God. That's why he prays in in Psalm 51, against you, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Where does your ultimate loyalty lie? Like David... That is going to be tested in your life as a Christian. At some point, your loyalty to Christ and the gospel will be put to the test. It probably already has been to some degree. And throughout the Christian life, your loyalty to the covenant will be put to the test. And as cultural pressure increases on Christians in the West today... The loyalty of believers is being put to the test. We'll be loyal to God and to our brothers in Christ even when we're being insulted and we're being betrayed and we're being let down. Will we put God's covenant word before everything else? Will we put God's word and our loyalty to him before our own desire for personal vengeance and revenge? Will we entrust ourselves to his grace I don't know whether dad may have stole my thunder in the prayers there, but remember what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you. This is Matthew 5, 11, 10 and 11, because of me. Be glad and rejoice Because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 10, he says, Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And remember, the kingdom of heaven doesn't just mean some ethereal place up there. The kingdom of heaven means the inheritance of everything that belongs to God. All things are yours. 
because all things are Christ's and Christ belongs to God. That's why I think I asked you to read Matthew 5 prior to today when we think about David's endurance of insult. Our faith rests in God's covenant loyalty to us in Christ and we're bound in covenant to him. And David remembered that. He remembered his covenant with God, his covenant with Jonathan. What's a covenant? A covenant is a bond. It's a, an oath. It's actually a bond that's secured by an oath, sometimes in blood. This is a symbol of God's covenant oath to us, in blood, in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible is full of covenants between God and people and between people, men and men. So between God and men and between men and men. Covenants between individual people, just between men, are parity covenants. That is, they're on an equal footing. Covenants between God and men are what we call Caesarean covenants. That is, they're a covenant with a Lord, a greater, with a lesser. Caesareans were political rulers, lords that imposed a two-sided treaty on a smaller, weaker nation or people. So the, the, the Lord promises them protection and promises them blessing, if you will, his blessing. And they promise fealty, loyalty. And if they default, there are sanctions that follow from breaking the covenant bond. So all of God's covenants with us are these kinds of Caesarean covenants. He pledges to protect and bless us, and we promise to worship him and obey him. So you think about the covenants in the Bible, you think about the the Noahic covenant with Noah, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant, which we'll be celebrating in a moment. Now, our culture doesn't think in covenantal terms anymore. That's why it's a kind of strange thing when people come to a church for the first time perhaps in many years or have never entered one before or never seen the covenant meal before, it seems odd because as a culture we no longer think in these terms and that's affected the church. We tend not to think in covenantal terms even as Christians. We tend to think in individual, personal and emotional terms. When we're reacting to life and its challenges and circumstances and all the cultural pressures, we tend to react in these individual ways. There was a movement in the history of Western thought called the Romantic Movement. And there were all these Romantic poets. Some of you may have studied some of them. And singers and artists. And there were some good things about it. It was redressing a kind of rationalism that it was reacting to. Everybody living out of their heads, a kind of stoic worldview. But the romantics stressed the individual. They were interested in people's emotions, in their intuitions, in their subjective responses. The artist was really magnified, not as somebody who was depicting something as real as they could in, in, a, in a fashion that was lifelike, but depictions that were created out of one's inner experience. Feelings, emotions, intuitions, they trumped any permanent covenantal ties and bonds, like any commitment to God, or commitment in marriage, or commitment in the life of the church, or in our nation. Covenants of any kind were de-emphasized. 
And they're de-emphasized today, aren't they? Think about the marriage covenant and how that's abused and not taken seriously anymore. Covenants in the life of the church, where we think of church membership as well, it's like a sports club, isn't it? If I don't like it anymore, I'm just going to go somewhere else. Covenants even with our sense of nationhood. It's almost a crime to be patriotic. In short, we face today a general refusal to be bound by anything other than our own experience and feelings. It's like a new religion of our culture, an existential religion. The human task is just for us to assign the kind of meanings that we want here and there. And when a given meaning's outlived its usefulness, we'll just move on to another one. We don't feel bound by our faith and covenant to the triune God. And for those who don't know the Lord, if he exists at all, he's very far away and we're left to our own devices. Well, it wasn't like that for David. Life was bound in every part for David by the meaning of God's covenant. He could have let his emotions have free reign in this situation, couldn't he? It was a very emotional time, but he didn't. He left Shimei alone and he entrusted himself to God. He said, let him be, let him curse. It's hard to say that, isn't it? When people are coming and get, let let him carry on. It's fine. But that's a very liberating point to get to. Let him do it. I'll trust myself to the Lord. That brings me to my last and very brief point as you continue to swelter. The end of loyalty. This, the end of the chapter is an interesting episode. Hashai is in Absalom's court on behalf of David. Ahithophel's there advising Absalom, and he says to Absalom, look, here's what you need to do. David's gone. Sleep with David's wives and concubines that are left looking after the royal house. Now, we might not see the full significance of that, but this was a hugely significant act in the ancient world to do that. Women played a very significant role in ancient society. Those women in the royal house, we won't get into a discussion now of the the sin that was involved in taking all of those wives and concubines, but their role was essentially political. They would have been women from other nations with whom David had struck treaties. So it was a statement. To do this was a statement. Absalom's action in heeding Ahithophel's counsel was a claim to the throne. Here's the beginning of a new dynasty. I'm taking over. All those treaties, you now have to deal with me. That's what he was saying. His brazenness would have given all the inhabitants of Jerusalem as well the sense that, oh, the insurrection has been a success. He's, he's, he's taken over the royal palace. He's taken all of his father's wives and concubines. This act ended all possibility of restoration of loyalty between Absalom and David. That's why I called it the end of loyalty, because this broke now the relationship between David and his son irrevocably. And and Absalom, and that's what Ahithophel wanted, and that's what Absalom did. There was no going back. He crossed a line now. It fulfills the words of the prophet Nathan, remember, regarding David's house in 2 Samuel 12. Do you remember that? 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan prophesied to David in verse 11 and 12, 
He says to him, this is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them publicly. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. It happened. It happens. It's a sober warning, actually. David continues to reap what he has sown here. It's a warning to us that though we can find forgiveness by repentance and faith, we can. Some sins have an abiding consequence in our lives when we cross a line, when we violate covenants. Even though we find forgiveness and grace with the Lord Jesus is done away, it does have temporal consequences. And David was still dealing with those temporal consequences. When we violate covenants, we reap what we sow. God's word says so. The apostle Paul says it in Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. In other words, if you sow to your own way and your own will in disobedience rather than to God's way and will, to sow to the Spirit, you reap a harvest. Sometimes people do things that can't be reversed. And in those times, we actually have to draw a line under some relationships. You know, as a pastor, I've sometimes had to say to people, you need to draw a line under your marriage. It's over. That's hard to say. When somebody is repeatedly violated the marriage covenant and somebody's utterly broken, they don't know how to move on in life, and you have to say you need to draw a line under the relationship. Sometimes people do make an irrevocable break with us, and, and, there's, and there's nothing that we can do. And those are hard moments. Sometimes our tendency is, I've got to claw back the friendship. I have to find a way back into this situation. I have to do this if only I do that. Actually, sometimes we have to draw a line. We have to commit people to the faithfulness of God and his righteous judgments and leave it with him. There's a final remarkable feature of the passage to note before we now come to the Lord's table. Does David's journey remind you of anything? His journey up the mountain... There's a remarkable feature to it. His, his journey up and beyond the summit of the Mount of Olives prefigures Christ's passion, the greater King David, the greater son of David. Think about these parallels in our passage. David is betrayed by those closest to him, his own son. Remember, Israel is depicted as God's son in the Older Covenant. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Israel was God's son. And Jesus had been betrayed by one of his closest among the twelve, Judas. As David goes and he's making his way up the mountain, some are weeping and wailing as he goes from the city. And as Jesus makes his way to the cross... People are, some are weeping and wailing. David experiences mocking and cursing and insult from the house of Saul, a Benjamite, 
resenting and denying his rightful kingship. And the Pharisees, in Jesus' case, and the Jews of various tribes are mocking and insulting the son of David. They accuse him falsely and they deny the legitimacy of his kingship. Do not write, king of the Jews. But that he said he was the king of the Jews. David responds without cursing. Like a lamb, he says, leave him alone. Let him curse. The greater son of David, Jesus, permits all the cursing that's going on around him and the insults of those around the cross and on the other crosses. And he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Despite it all, David remains loyal to the covenant and to a covenant-keeping God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is utterly faithful to God, to the house of Israel, and to his covenant calling, to his calling, his mission. So let's remember that covenant faithfulness, the covenant faithfulness that Christ, that took Christ actually to the cross. It was his faithfulness to God and the covenant that took him to the cross to bear our sin and all those curses and insults to bear them on himself. And let's recommit ourselves today as we come to the Lord's table to pay the price of loyalty to the covenant. The same price that David was willing to pay, which is pictured right here at this table.